Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Candid interviews with amazing Australian entrepreneurs who started with a humble idea and built it into something substantial and sustainable. It's the human face behind how they built it. On today's episode... So I think having these really amazing people who are very talented at their you know, their core strengths and how they contributed to the business. But also, I think even more important, around the table to challenge each other in a very open, transparent way has been critical to the business success. After launching her DVD distribution business, Canopy, in little old Perth in 2008, serving the Australian University Library market with much improved access to film collections, Olivia Humphrey saw the future with the internet. And she succeeded in then transforming Canopy into an online film streaming service in 2010. But Olivia quickly realised she had to transplant herself her husband Grant and their 10-month-old baby son to the United States to live to shepherd Canopy's growth in that much bigger, more cutthroat pool. The young family took the plunge and Olivia worked to secure the American university library market, which was no easy task. Around 2016, though, she sourced some private equity in the form of millionaire investor Jam Najafi, whose Phoenix-based Najafi companies invested in Canopy. Well, that's alongside his investments in the McLaren F1 racing team and the Phoenix Suns NBA team. As Olivia tells it, that partnership with all Najafi's depth of knowledge and support was the single biggest impact not only on Canopy's success, but on Olivia Humphrey herself cementing her confidence and ability as an entrepreneur. Even then, as you'll hear, the next part of the journey wasn't without its serious challenges. Hope you enjoy part two of my chat with Canopy founder, Olivia Humphrey. When did you broaden out to public libraries? Because I imagine that was another huge step forward in your scale up. Huge. And that was with Jams as well under the Najafi team. We were looking at growth opportunities and it seems in retrospect public libraries, it almost seems preordained that we would launch into public libraries. It was an obvious growth opportunity, but it took a lot of off-sites, a lot of discussion. There were so many opportunities that we ended up having like week-long workshops working out our next growth opportunity and landed on public libraries. And it was phenomenally successful. I mean, I think the revenue quickly became as much as the university revenue and the audience grew monumentally. Why do you think it was so successful? I think it was successful because we understood libraries, we understood librarians, we had this incredible relationship with a lot of the films that played well. Our thoughtful entertainment curatorial approach played very well into public libraries' own missions. The university libraries and the public library market work quite closely together in many ways. And so it was an obvious transition. Saying that no other video company had made this transition, even book companies haven't been able to make the transition from the university or the academic market to the public library market. But for us, we navigated it very, very well, even to the point that our sales team had a sales pitch. The same person would pitch to a university library and the next pitch would be to a public library with a slightly tweaked pitch. But we tried to make everything as streamlined as possible 
So there was minimal disruption to the business. It took a long time till we hired someone actually, in addition to our existing staff count, to start managing the public libraries. That's how seamless the, the transition was. Yeah. Olivia, how though did you compete and compete successfully with Netflix and some of the other streaming services, including the niche streaming platforms? How did you get eyeballs onto your site and that Netflix didn't try and crush you? So I felt Netflix was a fabulous partner in crime. If there was a film that was on Canopy that was on Netflix, it was a great gift to us because, of course, we didn't have as much of an awareness struggle to have. We really only came across Netflix as we started getting a lot bigger. And filmmakers at Sundance would say, I'm going to sell my film to Netflix but carve out educational public library rights for Canopy. Right. That was really only where we started, I guess, having more of the competitive conversations. I really don't think there was any competition. There's so many streaming platforms out there. We're all fighting the same fight. We're all trying to get people to press play on independent films. (laughs) And I never really saw it as competition. I'm not sure they really saw us as competition, much as it would be very flattering if they did. But for us, we did have a, a different demographic. I mean, if you think in you know, some of the areas in the US that we were streaming to, some of our audience couldn't afford internet yeah. to go to the public library and watch Canopy there. So we, it was effectively free for our audience, which was something that was a huge competitive advantage if you look at it like that. Olivia, why did you do a deal with private equity in what, June 2018? And how did that deal go down? So around 2018, we decided to acquire a fairly large East Coast-based video company to absorb it under Canopy. It seemed like a really great strategic alliance. And it was a very exciting process for me. Again, this was with Najafi. And I looked at the books and this company was debt burdened beyond anything that I could even comprehend, understanding that I have a huge aversion to debt and Canopy had always been cash positive from month one. So I really got a big insight into how companies work, how a lot of companies you know, work off debt. And I, I understand a lot more about that now. But when it came to valuing that company, I was working with Jaffe thinking the valuation, taking on that level of debt is going to be quite low because <laughs> we're going to have to pay back the bank. So we put in a bid yeah, and our bid was absolutely, what's the best way to describe it? It was almost embarrassing because it ended up selling for, I think, was it 20 times or even 30 times more what we bid for? And I really mm. said to Jam, this is crazy. How can companies be valued this much? He said, that's how it's working in these days. There is so much money in the market. Investors and private equity are placing very high valuations. And the way that they're calculating how to value a company is, is very much in the, you know, the company's interest. And so I said, well, that sounds like a really great time for us to sell. And that's really how the idea to sell came about. I intended to stay on and and work with new owners. I also thought we'd been working with Najafi for quite a few years. And I did think if we could get a strategic buyer, we could also morph into a new, a whole new stratosphere of growth. And so we looked at a sort of an acquisition universe of strategic buyers and ended up selling to private equity that had a huge sort of portfolio that we thought could really help us in in a new growth area. Yeah, so this is L squared capital. Yeah, they're a Newport-based private equity spun out from Chicago Growth, which is a really big private equity firm there. 
Yeah, so uh, you did sell for a very impressive sum, as I read in some of the research I did. You supposedly sold it for nine figures in US dollars. Is that true? The sale price was something that you know has changed my life, but it's not something that I really use as an indicator of success. I'm incredibly grateful. I can't believe how it has changed our life forever. But for me, that's not the thing that I've spent a lot of time thinking about, to be honest. Mm. But in another way, it must have been, I mean, yes, you're talking really about the crazy multiples and crazy high valuations were perhaps the real impetus to sell. But, you know, this was your baby and, and yet you're taking an exit. That must have been very tough. I didn't see it as an exit. So... We sold and I stayed on as CEO with the team, the new team at L Squared Capital in Newport. And that was a lot of fun flying down to Newport Beach for our, for our board meetings and things. So the plan wasn't for me to leave and I had no desire to leave at that particular point in time. It felt right. It really did feel right. You know, losing my majority was something that it just felt the right time. I really felt I was ready to take on a new challenge with Canopy and take on a new role within Canopy. And so, yeah, it actually, I don't know, I've never been asked the question. It's a good question, though. It just, it just felt the right time. It felt the right place. I talked earlier about the fear of having family members in the business. And by that stage, I had a team at Canopy who also had equity in the business. You mean fear of letting them down? Absolutely. Fear of letting them down was something that was just really, really hard for me. And so rewarding all these people for all of their hard work and the incredible work they'd done to build the company, it just felt the right time. It felt like a transition moment, a time where we sort of finished the chapter of Canopy as it was and moved Mm. to what it had to become. It didn't even really feel like much of a choice. You stayed as CEO for a while. What's your role at Canopy now? Do you still have one? I do not. So I stayed at Canopy for a while and then decided with my my, my son was the, the next big thing. I guess being able to breathe after that whole acquisition process and focus back in on the family. Grant and I realized we'd always thought we'd move back to Australia when Harry was around 12. And by this stage, Harry was around six and or maybe just seven even. And it was around that time that Grant and I decided, I think the time's right. We actually want to bring him up in Australia. I mean, he'd come home from school. He had just had a, a drill learning about when lone shooters enter the into the school, this is what you do. And it was just a different psychology in America. It's, 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 it's so wonderful in so many ways, but so different to Australia. And Grant and I are Australian, and we just felt that was the time. So I went to the private equity And I thought, honestly, I thought they would welcome the news that we could hire a seasoned CEO to take Canopy into the new stratosphere. (laughs) And I was still there. I would stay on. I gave them, I said, you know, I'm giving you a year's notice. We'll work together. We'll we'll find this new CEO. But I think it's time, Grant and I want in, in a year's time to spend Christmas back in Australia. And the news didn't go down too well, which I guess was flattering in retrospect. We found a wonderful CEO who had a lot of experience in the library market and so the private equity and, and the team really warmed to the new CEO. We had a long transition because we had the luxury of time. And I stayed on as board member 
and I intended to stay on as non-executive board member still today. But we moved back to Australia and within two months, COVID hit (laughs) and the world changed, life changed as we knew it. I started doing board meetings remotely two or three in the morning. I was meant to be going back to San Francisco every quarter. That was the intention for, for the board meetings. And after about three board meetings, I realized that I wasn't having the impact that I wanted. I was so removed from the business. The business was moving in wonderful new directions. And I really came to realize that it didn't need me anymore. It really didn't need me. And it was sort of sad, but happy. It was this bittersweet moment where I realized I'm so proud of what it is. I'm so proud of the direction it's going. But I think it's time. And I think COVID and being so isolated out here in Perth really hit home. I'm ready to start my next chapter. And in order to do that, it's time for me to say goodbye to Canopy. So what is next for you? Another individual startup, your own startup, or investing in others' ideas? Definitely investing in other incredible, talented founders. I'm working with a really fantastic venture capital fund out of Victoria who are investing in media entertainment startups, global entertainment startups, and that's just Act Capital. Act Capital, ACT Capital Partners. Yes, ACT Capital Partners. I've decided I don't want to do my own startup, but I've got the startup bug. And by being able to talk to all of these incredible founders in a domain that I know so well, media entertainment, it just gets me so excited, not only talking to the founders and analyzing their businesses and helping them and investing in them, but also working with the team. The the team at Act Capital, ACT Capital, they're just fantastic and smart and so experienced. They come from media entertainment background, so they're incredibly knowledgeable. And I started working with them ad hoc when I first came back and just found that every time that we engaged, it got me really quite excited and passionate about what they were doing. And so it was just an obvious next step to become an advisor and more under the hood there. So I really, really enjoy that. I enjoy giving back too and drawing a lot of experience to help, but also learning a lot from these founders who are just doing unbelievable things. You've also got a role as entrepreneur in residence at Curtin University. I just love that. Again, the the Curtin team. And one thing that I've learned over the years is nothing's fun if the people you're working with aren't like-minded or have similar values and just Mm. exciting and interesting and buzzy. And for me, Curtin is that as well. It's just a really great team. And at Curtin, I I love it. It's more working with startups, some Curtin IP, working on their boot camps and their founder camps, doing a lot of mentoring, working with a lot of female founders on some of the challenges that are unique to being a female founder. And seeing these businesses grow and thrive here has been very rewarding. Yeah. Well, you talk about uh, women founders. It's interesting. Do you think it was harder or easier as a woman founder for you in San Francisco in the United States than it would have been here in Australia? I think both. The advantages outweigh the disadvantages. Being Australian in the US, I see it the same way. I often didn't think about my gender, but I often noticed my nationality. <laughs> I even getting on a phone call and saying, hi, how are you going? No one says that in America. And just having that silence at the other end of the phone while the person on the phone realized and was just <laughs> recalibrating what they thought the phone call was going to be like, it was just a real advantage. I, I really loved having my accent. I loved being female. I just It's just who I was. So I didn't think too much about it. Do you think you could have built Canopy into the juggernaut it became if you'd stayed in Australia? No, definitely not. I think the market for 
that I was working in, only having 39 universities here, it was too small. I think the reason that we moved to America was realizing that at some point we would be dwarfed by these big, well-funded American competitors. And so absolutely not. There's just, I mean, Australia's still in a very important part of our revenue, but a tiny part of our revenue. Given that you have made a pile for yourself and after a dozen years of hard work or almost a dozen, do you think about philanthropy and do you have a view on it? Um, I think I, I say I am switching to we. My husband and I think a lot about philanthropy and we do a lot. We like to be quite private about it, but in a number of different industries at the moment, and we're still learning a lot about philanthropy and what matters and how we can be impactful. But at this point, we're very, very cognizant of the Indigenous experience, which feels magnified to us coming from America, where the African-American experience is something that you can't quite understand without even living there. And even then, I'm still not sure I fully understand it. And so coming back and getting a bit distressed that you know the Indigenous experience in, a, in Australia, there are some challenges that I feel should be fairly easily overcome. We're working a lot in that area in a a private way, but I imagine over the years that's going to grow. Mm. I'm asking most of my guests this, Olivia, as we'll sort of wrap up, and they don't have to be long answers if you don't want to, but what are the key things you think you've learned about yourself in this past dozen years since you started Canopy? I've had to learn a sense of self-worth and self-acceptance. I think I've really learned the difference between self-confidence and self-esteem. Self-confidence is being really good at particular things and striving. So, for example, hitting revenue goals or whatever those particular goals are, health goals, and having confidence in reaching those goals and getting that hit of confidence is a fabulous thing. But without having an undermining sense of self-worth, it doesn't matter how much confidence you have, (laughs) you can never be truly satisfied and happy. And building that sense of who I am and being comfortable with who I am and blocking out people who I might not respect who might have different ideas about who I am has been something that I've had to work on to get to this particular point. I've still got a, a big journey to go. What do you think is the main ingredient in building your business canopy? The people, for sure, the people. So we talked of Simon, we talked to my husband, Grant, of Tom. You know, there there are so many people and I wish that I could say it was all me, (laughs) but it was not in any way. So I think having these really amazing people who are very talented at their, you know, their core strengths and, and how they contributed to the business, but also I think even more important around the table to challenge each other in a very open, transparent way has been critical to the business success. Mm. What's the biggest thing you've learned in your startup journey? How important values are. I keep coming back to the people thing, but mm. working with people that have different values, it it's just so hard. And for me, at least, it just never worked. It didn't matter how talented these people were on paper or how successful they were. If there were different values, it just never worked. And it brought so much angst into the company or into my personal life. It just didn't work. So yeah, working with people with similar values. And values like what? So look at the different pinnacles of value. Like, you know, there's there's family values, there's, you know, work values, there's health values. Mm. So all of these different pinnacles and, and you could define them in, in different particular ways. 
But when it comes to sitting around a table, okay, I'm going to do a, a practical example. At Canopy, something that I really, truly valued was the so-called work-life balance. And I was a big advocate for at five o'clock, everybody switch off your computers and go home, smell the sunshine, do the things you love and come back energized the next day and bring that energy back to the company. Now, as the company grew, we hired people who valued work so highly as such a core value that they would demand that of their team. And people started working to eight to nine o'clock at night. And that had a huge impact on the culture of the company. So this is just a very small example of what I could give more dramatic examples, but I could get into trouble of how I grew to realize that if we don't all have the same values, the entire company shifts in its culture, in its outlook, in, in mm. the sense of happiness and buzziness around the office. Hopefully that gives a small indication of what I'm trying to say. Oh, it does. And what's the toughest thing you think you've had to face in your career? The toughest of all would be the vicious competitive backlash when I got to America, which was something I wasn't prepared for and so distasteful that I look back and I feel a sense of anger still about what some of these companies did or tried to do. Like? Can you give us a brief example? Um, one example is the competitors had hired a very influential librarian who called me and said, can you pay my private consulting company a lot of money every month? And if you don't, I'm going to badmouth you. And A, I couldn't afford to pay that. <laughs> and B, it was just against my own integrity and I just wouldn't do that. And I guess it was one of those early moments like, I think I'm going to fail because, you know, these mm. big bullies are really coming after me. The worst sort of cash for comment. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was really distasteful. Yeah. And we overcame that by just sticking true and staying fast and, and just heads down and focusing on what we did. But it certainly made things harder. It made the success a lot. It, it took a lot longer than we'd hoped. You know, we didn't get any indications of success really until end of year two. That was a long two years of remortgaging the house and not paying ourselves and yeah, trying to keep up a really wow. chipper vibe at work so none of the staff knew that we were really in a dismal place. A lot of heartache and stress and I feel I lost a lot of time with my son, which I really feel a sense of anger about. It didn't have to be that way. I felt I could mm. have had more of my personal life in check if I didn't have this competitive backlash. Saying that, it was also possibly one of the biggest gifts that they gave me because I became so determined. I do have fire in my belly and they certainly lit it. And maybe without that, it wouldn't, wouldn't have seen the success it had. What are you obsessed about at the moment? And that could be an idea, a, a person, a, a book. I'm obsessed with podcasts. <laughs> and I'm obsessed with podcasts because of COVID and, and WA being so disconnected and cut off from the world in this strange COVID-free world we live in. It's a connection to the real world. And it's conversations, it's the closest I can have to long, deep conversations I can have with incredible minds, with people doing incredible things, whether they're Australian or international, whether they're in the startup world or the film world. It's a sense of learning as well, so I can keep learning. It makes me feel less disconnected from the rest of the world and, and, and helps me to remain relevant. What do you say to younger people who might come to you and say, I want to start a business, I've got a great idea? I say good luck. <laughs> I say good luck. So you don't say don't do it. You would encourage them? I don't say don't do it, but I don't say do it. I feel like there's so much complexity to starting a business. If you don't do it yeah. and you don't try, well, it's never going to happen. And I tend not to 
talk to those that are just er so early stage. My comfort zone is growth stage because that's when I think jam entered my life and I really found a level of confidence with how to grow a business. So I tend to talk at that stage of the business. But those early, I mean, I wish everybody would start a business. As long as there's not huge financial or personal or health risks to starting it, I just think it's a wonderful experience. You learn so much about yourself. You learn so much about business. And, you know, coming from Silicon Valley, it doesn't matter if you fail. <laughs> it's a privilege if you fail because you've learned something. And when I interview candidates at Canopy, they often, a lot of candidates often talked about the companies they'd started and failed and as a, as a badge of honor. Kind of a mark of success or a badge of honor, as you say. True, it is. Olivia Humphrey, the founder and former CEO and builder of Canopy. It's been such a great pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much for joining me on Build It, Thou Come. Thank you so much for having me, Helen. I hope you enjoyed Build It, Thou Come. Let me know via Twitter and LinkedIn. Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know by sharing it around your networks. And I'd love you to give it a star rating on Apple Podcasts to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turn their light bulb idea into an empire.